0: Good morning everyone. You doing all right? Alright, we're going to dive right in. There are some black Bibles around the room. If you don't have uh, your Bible with you, I want to want to encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles around the room. We're going to be on page 914 if you need some help finding your way around. It's in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the churches of Galatia. These are churches, a collection of churches in uh, modern-day southern Turkey. And he's writing to the Galatians because they have been infiltrated with false teaching. And the, the content of this false teaching, in some would say, yes, believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, but also you must continue to obey the full law of Moses for your salvation, which would include a ceremonial law and also include being morally upright and morally righteous. So Paul, they've been infiltrated by these false teachers, and Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Faith in Christ alone is what saves, and our good works for God come out of our faith, come out of our justification. It comes out of the fact that we have been saved. So we're going to dive right into Galatians chapter 2, and this is part, this is this is kind of mid-sentence. Um, where the Apostle Paul has just rebuked the Apostle Peter because Peter has forgotten the gospel. He's withdrawn from the Gentiles, and he is essentially with his way of life and his conduct said, you have to follow the law to be saved. Paul comes in and says, Peter, you know the gospel. You lived with Christ for three years before his death and resurrection. He appeared to you after his resurrection. He's taught you the content of this gospel. Your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul rebuked Peter and the other Jews who were there with him for hypocrisy. Their conduct did not match their, their, what they stated that they believed. So we're catching up with Paul mid-sentence as he is relaying to these Galatian churches his conversation and rebuke of Peter. That's where we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 15. And then we're going to continue through the end of Galatians chapter 2. I, I covered Galatians 2, 15 and 16 last week. So if you want to listen to our podcast, go ahead and do that. And that, that was a place where I defined what justification by faith is. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Paul saying to Peter here, relaying his conversation with Peter, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified or made righteous by works of the law, but a person is made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. He says essentially here, so Peter, we also have believed. You and I have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, made righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And then he says it again in a very general way, because we know, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, verse 17, and this is where we're going to hang today, is 17 through 21. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God or void it. For if righteousness justification or through the law then Christ died for no purpose this is God's word father we need your help through your spirit to help us understand what it is that we are to do with this an ancient text written to an ancient people by a living God who is ever present with us this word has been preserved for us and now it teaches us what you have done who you are and how we are also to live in light of it. So would you speak? Would you form us? Would you shape us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Paul's argument in this section, uh, it it requires some effort from us to understand. Section 17 through 21, it requires a bit of effort to understand. I've been wrestling with the the turns of phrase here and the way that this is translated. Uh, Especially difficult to understand. It can be challenging to understand if we're reading it in uh, more literal translations, where we read out of the English Standard Version, which is um, in many ways transliterated from the original Greek and from the original languages. As well. So this these arguments, the way that they're taking it right from the Greek and then turning it into English, can be a bit difficult. So um, there's a translation called the New Living Translation, which is more of a thought for thought translation. And what I often do, if I'm finding arguments in the scriptures hard to follow, I'll go to a more thought-for-thought translation so that I can kind of get my head and heart around the argument. And then once I kind of understand what is being said here, then I'll move back into more literal translations so that I'm so that the preservation of the actual words, the actual actual phrases are there for us. I'd also encourage you to use a study Bible if you're having a difficult time understanding some of the arguments. So I want to read this section from verse 17 to 21 out of the New Living Translation. I think you'll find it very easy to understand here. Paul says, But suppose, Peter, we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we've abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law, which means I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements, so that, there's a purpose clause here, so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So Paul here is saying to Peter, Peter, we take Jesus at his word. Do we not? You're an apostle, Peter. I'm an apostle. As, the, as Paul is speaking here, these are apostles, and they, their teaching is corroborating Jesus' teaching. Jesus taught himself that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes into fellowship with the Father except by him. So Jesus is the way to salvation. That is his teaching. The law is not the way to salvation. Keeping rules, keeping ceremonial law, even keeping the moral law is not the way to salvation. Jesus Christ stands in authority over this law. Why? Because he is the one who perfectly kept it. He fulfilled it. And we know as we try to keep the moral law, we know that we're overpowered by it. We know that when we try to live perfectly, we're quickly tapping. Are we not? We're quickly crying uncle because we cannot perfectly keep the law. But Jesus is different. He has fulfilled it perfectly. He is the master of the law. And so Paul's argument to Peter as he's relaying his conversation with Peter here, he's saying, Jesus has not led us into sin. He's led us to freedom from the law's mastery over us. And this, for us, Peter, for us, church in the 21st century, this is why the gospel is literally good news for us, because Jesus has done for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. So to go back to law-keeping, to go back to rule-keeping, to performance-oriented religiosity for us is to say that the law is a more favorable, that rules are a more favorable Lord than Jesus Christ is. And we do not agree with that. We say that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is the only Lord. To go back to religious performance in order to be made righteous is to deny the truthfulness of Jesus, is to deny the justification of Jesus Christ, and ultimately it's to deny Jesus Christ himself. That's what Paul is writing to these Galatians in Galatians 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. That's why Paul was astonished at these Galatians, because they're deserting God by deserting justification by faith in Christ alone. So Paul will conclude this section in verse 21 by saying, if we can find salvation through self-mastery, then Jesus died for no purpose. Self mastery—it's an important theme that we're going to come back to. And in, in fact, uh, the the Apostle Paul—he'll—he'll he'll, from here on out—he'll begin to kind of unpack this, and we'll see it explicitly next week in Galatians chapter three. He starts to talk about about self mastery and how it, it it's related to our salvation, and how these Galatians are trying to perfect in their flesh, in their own willpower, what was actually begun in them by the Holy Spirit. So they're like, "Thanks for getting us in, Holy Spirit. Peace." I'm going to go ahead and make myself pure now. Paul's saying, that's all, that's hogwash. You can't do it. We can't do it. We need the grace of Christ, not only to bring us into the family of God, but to keep us going on in the family of God. So I've got four points, uh, three more points this morning. My first point was that Jesus' authority stands above the law. We saw that in verses 17 and 18. My second point is, Paul is recognizing here, the law's purpose is to drive him to Christ. For us, the law's purpose is to drive us to Christ, the law's purpose—the moral law, the ceremonial law, all of that—in in Israel and and the moral law, which still is good for us today, its purpose is to drive us in dependence to Jesus Christ. When Paul lived by the law, he's exceptional. He's like the MJ of Judaism. He's like the Michael Jordan of Judaism. He's just outpacing all of his peers. His peers are having a hard time keeping up with him. And Paul knew that. He he speaks to it in, he spoke to it here in Galatians chapter 1 for a bit. He speaks to it in Philippians as well, I believe chapter 3. He speaks to it in other places in the New Testament, just how uh, excellent he was at keeping the law as a Pharisee. He knows he's good. In fact, he knows he's extraordinary but he knows he's not that good. As he continues to progress in his faith, as he continues to outpace his peers, he recognizes that he still can't keep the law perfectly. He's good, just not good enough. And so the, the more that the Apostle Paul would improve, the, the more wide his awareness of his lack would become. You know how when you start to study a subject and you think you know something about it and you get into it and then you, you get this little body of knowledge and then you realize all that you don't know and it kind of goes bloop and then you grow up and you're like this big and then the body of knowledge, the things that you don't know, get even bigger. We become more, the more we learn, the, bec- the more aware we become of how little we actually know. And I believe that the Apostle Paul was seeing that as he continued to live according to the law. In keeping the law obsessively, the Apostle Paul understood he couldn't keep it perfectly, and so it condemned him. Good job, Paul. Good job. You're outpacing your peers. Still guilty. Not perfect. Still guilty. See, God's standard for us is not be good enough. God's standard for humanity is perfection all over the scriptures. We see it quoted in the New Testament, out of the Old Testament, be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. God's standard of perfection, what it does is it destroys our, our moralizing. It destroys this anthem and demolishes this anthem of moralistic but unchristian folks who say, just be a good person. That's what ultimately matters. We hear that often in our day, do we not? It's actually not what matters to God. What matters to God is our faith in him alone to save us and to purify or sanctify us. And so our work is to trust his work in us and his work for us and his work through us. So for the apostle Paul to die to the law, for him to say, I died to the law, it meant that he ceased to continue believing that keeping God happy through his actions and his lifestyle would provide the ticket for his righteousness. Because he stopped believing that the law could save, his conduct actually began to fall into line with his new belief. He stopped obeying the law as his master and savior. And as he started to look to Jesus Christ for his righteousness and as his righteousness, he recognized that he moved from a kind of religious, judgmental, self-righteous person too, as he continued to look to Christ, he, he began to to think about and consider how he might pour his life out for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the people around him. It caused, as he recognized the grace of God for him through the work of Jesus Christ, it caused Paul to rest on God's grace and to not rest any longer on his own good works. Paul realized that that was the law's purpose to begin with. The law drove him independence to Jesus Christ. The law exists to show him, to show people, to show us our weakness and our inability to rescue ourselves from our predicament. The law drove Paul to rely on grace because perfection is the standard, not just do a good job and try hard and then God will look at that and accept you based on those merits. There's a man named Stephen Callahan. Uh, He wrote a memoir called 76 Days Lost at Sea. In 1983, I believe, he found himself adrift in the Atlantic Ocean uh, on a raft all alone. And he would end up enduring on the Atlantic for 76 days before he was ultimately rescued. And he writes in this memoir. He writes very poetically about his experience, um, because as he one of one of the ways that he was emotionally trying to continue to survive and just. Um, keep himself together emotionally was he was looking for beauty around him. And what he noticed was there was this, this small ecosystem that began to develop around his raft. And so these fish, sharks, other, other little critters would just follow him around in this raft. And then the birds overhead would also see these fish and they would fish and they would use this as a source of food. And so as he's drifting for 76 days, that's two and a half months at sea all alone, he begins to see the beauty of this ecosystem. And this is what he writes. In addition to the little ecosystem developing around my raft, I am constantly surrounded by a display of natural wonders. The acrobatic dorados, these are like a blunt-faced dolphin. Uh, The acrobatic dorados perform beneath ballets of fluffy white clouds. So notice his poetic language here. The clouds glide across the sky until they join at the horizon to form whirling, flaming sunsets that are slowly doused by nightfall. So imagine yourself in his place in a raft like this. Then, as if the sun had suddenly crashed, thousands of glistening galaxies are flung out into the deep black night. There is no bigger sky country than the sea, he writes. But I cannot enjoy the incredible beauty around me. It lies beyond my grasp. Haunting me knowing it can be stolen from me at any time by a dorado who flip their tails or jump up into his raft or a shark attacked or even by a deflating raft i cannot relax and appreciate this beauty it is beauty surrounded by ugly fear he writes in his log that it is a view of heaven from a seat in hell Think about that language looking to how well we obey god's moral commandments for our justification is like getting a glimpse of heaven's perfection from a seat in hell we cannot perform our way into perfection god's moral law stands over us you shall have no other gods before me you shall love me with all of your heart with all of your soul with all of your mind and your strength and your neighbor as yourself we shouldn't lie or cheat right or steal or murder cheat on our spouses or covet what isn't ours we know that we even fail just those simple 10 commandments so to look to how well we obey our moral commandments if we're looking to those to, to looking to how well we obey the moral commandments if we're looking to those things for our justification it is like a glimpse of heaven's perfection this is how god has created things to live created people to exist but it's from a seed in hell. And Stephen Callahan, he couldn't rescue himself. He was constantly reminded of his predicament and his inability to self-rescue. And so as we also, if we're looking to moral perfection, to keeping the laws as the way that we will finally be deemed right with God, we recognize also that we are unable to rescue ourselves. So Paul recognizes this truth. He stops looking to the law for his salvation, and he does so with a purpose he does so, we see it, that he might exercise faith in God as his justifier rather than looking at himself as his own self-justifier. And so as Paul looks to Jesus Christ as his justifier rather than to himself, he experiences incredible change. As he gets his mind up off of all of his behaviors and onto the risen Christ, change starts to work its way into him and eventually it will work its way out of him. From a self-righteous religious zealot obsessed with his own glory, Paul moves as he's looking at Christ, as he's keeping his gaze fixed on what Jesus has done for him. He moves and he he becomes, he transforms into a humble servant-hearted worshiper of God who would do anything for God's glory and the people that he loves the justifying grace of God changed Paul's inner life dramatically. And from that inner change, the outer change would soon flow. And so here's my third point. And this is really kind of, if you remember anything, I want you to remember this this morning, that justified people are changed people people declared righteous by God. Our sins are forgiven. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account by faith. As that justification happens for us, justified people are changed people. Justification by faith alone, it changes us. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's preaching to Peter about justification. He's reminding Peter in this text about justification. They have not been justified by the law, they've been justified by the grace of God. And Paul is a changed man now because of the, this grace from God to him, which ignites his faith. And then, this faith, as he continues to exercise it and keep his gaze on Christ, God, through the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, moves him internally to servanthood and a, willing, a willingness to do good things. See, Paul believed that God had been good to him despite how Paul actually was to God and to the people around him. Remember, Paul reminds us, I think, in chapter 1, verse 13, that he was a violent persecutor of the church. He deserved death and hell. He deserved to be cut off from the grace of God and the existence and the presence of God, and God says, no, 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 you're mine. Paul says, from before, uh, from his mother's womb, God was calling him, and he recognizes that he is nothing but an empty-handed recipient of the grace of God, and as he sees the that it changes him as he sees what he did deserve and what God has given him in the gospel. It changes everything for him. And therefore, Paul, uh, goodness, the goodness of God began to work its way out in Paul's heart and that goodness would then pass on to others, even his own, Paul's own enemies, regardless of how they also treated him because he's becoming like a mini Christ as Christ is living through him. The Holy Spirit is living through him glorifying God and being good to the people around him. And Paul will explain this in terms of his death and resurrection. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Look at verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, his, his physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me this is one of the most glorious truths in all of the bible it's referred to as union with christ or mystical union just by way of application this is an aside for you this morning uh, google union with union with christ and then right next to that right in desiring god And that will take you to a website called Desiring God and this this short article on union with Christ where John Piper begins to unpack for us how we can see the glorious wonder of what union with Christ is. Anytime you see the phrases in Christ or with Christ or for Christ in the scriptures, it's speaking to some benefit of union with Christ. The basic premise of union with Christ is that by faith we are joined to Jesus permanently in his death and his never-ending resurrection life. Think about being welded to Christ. By God himself, no one can undo that, and God himself says he'll never undo that. It cannot be undone. And so we are then identified with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will finish the work that he has begun in us. Listen to John Stott uh, make this clear. I'm going to read out of this uh, commentary just briefly here. He's going to unpack this very well. He says, uh, where am I? I'm on the wrong page. All right. You would be so confused. <clears throat> justification is not a legal fiction in which a man's status is changed while his character is left untouched. We are justified in Christ. That is, our justification takes place when we are united to Christ by faith. And someone who is united to Christ is never the same person again. Instead, he or she is changed. It is not just his or her standing before God which has changed. It is he or she themselves radically, permanently changed. To talk of his going back to the old life and even sinning as he pleases, it's frankly impossible. He has become a new creation and begun a new life. This amazing change through justification which which comes over somebody who is justified in Christ, Paul now unfolds for us. He describes it in terms of a death and a resurrection. Twice in verses 19 of Galatians 2 and 20, he speaks of this dying and this rising to life again. Both take place through union with Christ. It's Christ's death and resurrection in which we share. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. What this means is the law's demands of death was satisfied in the death of Christ. And there's a reason that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. What this means is that being united to Christ in his sin-bearing death, my sinful past, your sinful past has been blotted out. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Perhaps now, Stott writes, it is becoming clearer why a Christian who is justified in Christ is not free to sin. In Christ, the old things have passed away and the new things have come. It's a quote from 2 Corinthians 5. This is because the death and resurrection of Christ are not only historical events, which means that he really did give himself, he really did resurrect from the dead, and he really does now live, but the death and resurrection of Christ are also in events in, in which, through faith union with him, his people have come to share. I have been crucified with Christ, and now I live. Once we've been united to Christ in His death, our old life is finished. It is ridiculous to suggest that we could ever go back to it. Besides, we have risen to a new life. In one sense, we live this new life through faith in Christ. In another sense, it is not we who live it at all, but Christ who lives it in us. And living in us, He gives us new designs or new desires for holiness, new desires for God, new desires for heaven, new desires for the good of our brothers and sisters. It is not that we cannot sin again. We can, but we don't want to. He's producing change within us. The whole tenor of our lives has changed. Everything is different now because we ourselves are different. See how daringly personal Paul makes it? Christ gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. No Christian who has grasped these truths could ever seriously contemplate reverting to the old life justification changes us and justified people are changed people. When I, uh, at 25 years old, when I really began to live for Christ and knew that he was real and, and and knew that he was for me. And and he loved me. A pastor friend of mine named AJ, took me out to coffee and he sat me down. And as we were talking, uh, I was just kind of explaining this experience that I had had with Jesus Christ, where I knew that he was for me, not against me. I knew that I deserved none of his grace toward me. I knew I didn't deserve any of that. And AJ just like, he, he, he solemnly, seriously, he looked at me and he goes, man, like seeing what you have seen now, knowing that you have had had this experience with the risen Christ. How could you ever return to your old life? Knowing what is before you, the feast that is before you, why would you ever want to turn to the vomit behind you? And those words stuck with me. I'll never forget them. It just, it just set me on solid ground. What I have experienced, even when I'm tempted to go back to the trash behind me, what is in front of me continues. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his spirit, continues to turn me to that view, and he keeps me, and he continues to work with me. He continues to walk me forward toward him in faith, in repentance. I still fall flat on my face daily. I am constantly, Meredith can tell you this, apologizing for my knuckle-headed ways. The people that most often see this are my wife and my kids. The people that are closest to us are the ones that we often will sin most quickly against. Are you you cultivating with those that you love a lifestyle of confession of sin and and asking for forgiveness? I constantly forget the gospel's implications for my life and my behaviors, and sometimes I forget these things for days on end. But here's the thing. But God but Jesus Christ. But the Spirit of God continues to bring me back, continues to draw me into himself, and continues to remind me of all that he has done and continues to do for me. See, I cannot pay Jesus back. Why? Because Jesus continues to pay my way. He's not done. Like, he continues to pay for me. My change, my inner change, it comes from my justification. I don't change for justification. And that's what Paul is trying to drill into the Galatians' heads here. Remember the quote from Martin Luther last week. He's like, we've got to know this article of justification. We've got to teach it to others constantly, and we've got to beat it into their heads continually. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And by way of the Apostle Paul, through God's word, that's what I'm trying to call us continually back to as a church, is we have to rest our our righteousness on the work of Christ alone, not on our own performance for Him. We have been justified by grace through faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. And because of this, we will never be the same. And here's my last point. As we receive God's gracious favor, as we receive God's gracious favor, we honor Christ and we experience change. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness or justification came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We don't nullify God's grace by living as though we can pay him back. Living like that says essentially that Jesus actually died for no purpose. I got it. I can do it on my own. And there are many ways for us to honor the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And one of the ways that we can love and honor him that Paul prescribes here in verse 21 for us is to refuse to nullify or void God's grace by essentially trying to pay him back through our excellent conduct, through our excellent lifestyle, through our excellent rule-keeping. Am I saying that conduct and rule-keeping don't matter to God? No. Channeling the Apostle Paul? Certainly not. We do need rules, you guys. We do need standards. We need to pay attention to our conduct. We need to evaluate our conduct consistently. Our conduct affects people. Our conduct affects Jesus Christ's reputation. Our conduct affects our own lives and futures. And we need laws, and we need to live by them in society. Do you want proof? Drive on the left-hand side of the road as you leave here today. Like, we need standards. We need laws. But what the apostles do teach and what Jesus Christ does advocate for is that rules and conduct are not the way to have righteousness before God. It's not the way to have justification before God. It's not the way to peace with God. Faith in him, in Christ alone, is the means by which we have a relationship with God. And it's also how we experience change. We live by faith in Christ, not faith in our own conduct. And as we recognize that we are secure in his love, it changes how we live toward him, and it changes how we live toward others. A nighttime ritual that I do uh, almost every night with our kids, I can't even get out of the girls' room without them say, do the eyes thing, Daddy, do the eyes thing. <laughs> what I'll do with our kids is I'll, I'll get down, they're laying on their bed, right, so they're looking at me like this. I'll get like eight inches from their face like this, and I'll look them in the eyes, and I'll say, can you see my eyes? And they'll nod at me. They say, Yeah. I say, Can you see that I see your eyes? They'll nod at me and they'll look at me. So we've got eye contact, we've got intimacy, we've got communication here. I'll say, Do you know that I love you? They'll nod their head and they'll say yes. I'll say, Do you know that I love you, not based on anything that you do or don't do? My love for you doesn't get bigger when you do good things. My love for you doesn't get smaller when you do bad things. i will say, Yeah. I'll say, who else loves you like that? God. They'll say to me, God does. And I'll say, even more than I do, I'll say, yeah, he does. I'll say, you can rest in God's love. You can rest in my love. He is here with you. He doesn't love you based on your performance for him. He loves you because he loves you, and you're secure in that. And I'll kiss him on the head and and leave the room. If I'm a good dad to my children, and if their standing with me is stable, and my love, though it is human love and fallen love, is the most unconditional uh, with my kids in relationship to my kids. If that, if that love, even though it's, it's fallen love, if it's stable, how much more stabilizing is the perfect, original, steadfast love of God? See, you guys, God's love so steadies us. When we recognize that he doesn't love us based on what we do for him, but he loves us based on his perfections, it so steadies us that we recognize we don't have to be afraid of what's true of us. We don't have to be afraid uh, that we can begin changing from one degree to the next because we live by faith in the Son of God who already knows us to the very bottom. He knows us to the dregs. And he gave himself for us while we were still vile and dismissive of him. While we were yet sinners, who died for us? Christ died for us. Can you say with confidence, church, that you're living by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you? This text calls us to refocus our gaze on Christ who loves us and gave himself for us and we do not nullify or void the grace of God by living as though he'll love us if we do good things but rather we recognize that he does love us and as that dawns on our heads and our hearts it begins to shift us and change us if we live uh, if we live for his affections based on our performance, it essentially is a lifestyle of nullifying God's grace towards us. We say, we don't need it. I got it from here. So if you can say with confidence that you're living by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, I would say continue going. Continue setting your gaze on the risen Christ. Continue walking in obedience to him. But if you if you can't say that, if, you say, if your answer is you're not sure, or your answer is no, I don't think I am living by faith in the Son of God, ask the Lord why not prayerfully. Lord, show me why my answer is no. Show me why my answer is not sure. Show me why it seems that I've lost my way. And I would just encourage you as well to ask somebody to come alongside you, help you discover why this is and what you can do about it. And if they're like, I don't know, I can't help you, then the two of you (laughs) go together and find someone and collect a little, you know a little posse and as you guys are are going searching for what it looks like for you to set your affections on the risen Christ for your change for your justification and for your change then you all will benefit as you go together and if you're not a christian and you recognize you know what I don't I don't I don't look to Jesus Christ as the one who makes me righteous I've been living as though I have to be a good person and believe in Jesus Christ I would just ask you to stop that to recognize that what the scriptures teaches what what the scriptures teach and what gospel christianity teaches is that you are justified that is made righteous by faith in Christ alone and this is God's grace upon you and let that settle in on your heart and let that begin to work in you and produce change in you and as change, as you find your soul at rest in that good news you will recognize that, wait a second he still calls me to obedience He's, Paul is going to get there in Galatians he just hasn't gotten there yet but we don't obey so that we will be accepted we accept, or we, we obey because we are accepted so if you're a non-Christian, you, you you recognize like I, I need Jesus Christ. He's real to me today in a way that He has not been real to me before. I would encourage you to just stop and to put your faith in Him, to repent of your sins, and to trust that at the cross He has paid your way and that you are justified by him as you believe that he is Lord and that the father raised him from the dead and that at that very moment that you are justified it is instant it is complete it is done never to be undone you are safe and secure with the Lord Jesus Christ and now he gives his spirit to you and he begins to work in you he begins to produce holiness in you and it's not you that's doing it but you're working in concert with him and that's the process of sanctification which we'll get to next week here's where I'll land the last paragraph here. The key to the Christian life, church, is exercised faith in the Son of God. I said this last week, like faith is a junk drawer word for us. We need to define faith well. There's faithy this, faithy that, and I have faith in this, and I have faith in that, but there is a specific biblical kind of faith that places our trust and dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is that he died for us and that he continues to live in and through us. And so faith for the Christian, it's a combination of things. It's a combination of knowledge, it's a combination of assent, and it's a combination of trust. We know the facts about the gospel. That is part of our faith. That's a piece of our faith as we look to Jesus Christ. The facts of his life, his death, his burial and his resurrection, but we don't just know the facts we actually believe that they're true. That's what assent is. We look at them and we say we believe that these things are true but even knowledge and assent isn't yet faith. It's when knowledge and assent and trust are all put together that we have faith and trust is resting the weight of our dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ for our righteousness and then for our honor ongoing help in the Christian life. Does that make sense? Father, would you speak to us this morning? Would you help us to understand what the Spirit of God is saying to your people? What it is that you're doing in us? Would you cause us to get honest with the reality of our lives? The reality of our behaviors? The reality of our, our, our functional saviors? The things in life that we look to to produce a righteousness in us? The ways that we work hard to prove we're okay, the ways that we perform, the ways that we pretend. As we see that you place your love upon us, not based on our performance for you, would that so free us to just get real with who we are and what's in front of us? And would we as a church family renew our trust in you would we look to you, not just for justification, but also for ongoing change and renewal in our life? And would we experience it? Holy Spirit, point out the ways that you are shifting the hearts of your people, the hearts of the individuals in their chairs this morning, and renew them and comfort them and let them know that you are with them, for them, not against them. And as we have sin to confess, and we have things that we have hidden from others we are trying to hide, unsuccessfully from you? Would you walk us into a reality that we can't hide from you and we don't need to because we're safe with you? Your love for us doesn't change based on the good things we do or the bad things we do. But your love is perfect. and The righteousness of your son is perfect. And the justification that we have through faith in Christ alone is perfect. So we're secure with you. Therefore, we can change